This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. I am proud to say that this episode of Anchored is made possible by Yeti. Over the years, Yeti has become a major part of my daily life. Whether it be a morning coffee while walking my dog, a quick lunch to go for the day, or the enormous Yeti Tundra 350 to keep my food cold when I'm in the remoteness of BC's North, it's actually hard for me to imagine my day-to-day without them. If you haven't checked out the Yeti website yet, hop online and visit www.yeti.com. Stephen Ranella is an avid angler, hunter, and all-round outdoorsman, author of five books, host of the popular TV series Meat Eater, and fellow podcaster, Stephen is a man with much to say. I met with him at his home in Washington in hopes that I might be able to partake in some thought-provoking conversation. He didn't disappoint. I was born in uh, a place called Twin Lake, Michigan. So it's in the it's in Muskegon County, Michigan, Western Michigan. I was about eight miles from the Lake Michigan coastline. Did you fish when you were in Michigan, or just hunt? No, man, we fished all the time. Okay, I so- grew up on a lake. Um, I grew up on there's there's four lakes there where I grew up. Twin Lake is kind of like a collection of lakes. If you look at it from the if you look at it from the air, it kind of looks like the track of like a, like a three toed dog. The lake in the middle is Middle Lake. When I was a little kid, all the lakes were connected by channels. And then people started getting annoyed with their basements flooding and shit like that when the, you know, when the water tables would get high. So they put in this big drain pipe and started sucking the lake levels down. So when I was a kid, they were all connected and we could take our kayaks or 
we didn't have kayaks and we'd take our canoes and rowboats between the different lakes. When I was real little, you could pull a water skier between the lakes. By the time I was in high school, they drained them down where the lakes were no longer connected at all. So they sucked the lake levels down. And it changed lakes a lot, man. But they were great fishing. Like my dad's sort of like his creation myth story about why he bought the house we lived in is he went there to take a look at the house. And at the time, it was all just summer cottages around our lake. He went to take a look at the house and uh, kind of checked out the house. And there was a boat there in the house. No one was living in the house. And so he just like took the boat out and cruised around. And, and uh, I can't remember. He t- I can't remember. You know, he caught like a, like a giant largemouth or right? like a four-pound largemouth or something uh, in the lake out in front of the house. And he's like, this is the house for me. So, no, <laughs> we, we fished all the time, man. All the, all the time we fished. We fished everything. And then you got in, in Lake Michigan, too. You have all these anadromous fish. So there's four, I think, four species of Pacific salmon. And then they tried and eventually established uh, Atlantic salmon in the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are just, you know, devastated from the time of European contact. Now they're sort of this, this experimental aquarium. So point being, we had an enormous variety of fish to fish for. Cause we had all these like native warm water fish and then all these other introduced cold water fish. And yeah, we fished a lot. My old man was a big time, he was a very avid fisherman. And then my maternal and paternal grandfathers are both avid fishermen. Okay. So talk me through your upbringing then. Did you have siblings? Yeah. I have a complex, somewhat complex family. Like, so I'm a uh, 42. Am I 42 or 43? I was born in 1974. Okay. <laughs> my old man, my old man was born in 1924. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, my dad enlisted and fought in World War II. Wow. Now, before leaving for boot camp in Biloxi, Mississippi, he got his girlfriend pregnant. That's okay. my oldest brother. <laughs> got it. Okay. So my old man never saw this kid until he got, my dad went and served and landed at the Anzio beachhead in Italy, hiked up all through the Italian peninsula into Europe, got home and his son, who he'd never met, is standing on a chair and says, that's my daddy. So that half brother of mine is the same age as my mother. Oh my gosh, that's such a trip. So my mother had, uh, my mother had two children. My father had four children and together they had three children. Okay, hold up, back up. So your dad got his girlfriend pregnant, didn't marry his girlfriend. Before going to World War II, married her when he got home. No, no, they got married while she came down. Once she found out she was pregnant, she came down to Biloxi, Mississippi to right. find my dad at boot camp and they got married like a courthouse <laughs> wedding. Okay. Yeah. Then he went off and fought World War II and came home and they were married for 25 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So then, then they were like divorced and right. my, and my mother was married to another gentleman and she had two children with him and they were divorced and then together they had, so I often talk, like I'll often talk about like my two brothers, but what I'm talking about is, <laughs> the, like we were just all stacked right in together, right? Yeah. So we just grew up together. Like I didn't grow up in the same home for the most part. I did not grow up in the same home as my my other brothers and sisters. So I'll often just you know I'll often be like, oh my two brothers, but I have many other siblings. But it's, I'm I'm just kind of referring to the two that I grew up like hand in hand with. Got it. So right. you grew up with two boys. Yeah. And for I'm the youngest. The entirety of your time at home were your parents together? Oh yeah. Awesome. Okay. No, yeah, my parents were together until my dad died. My mom still lives in the house I was born in. Yeah, she still lives on that lake. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so a family with three boys. That's yep. a hectic household. So yeah, I grew up, we hunted and fished and started fur trapping when I was 10. How my did brothers, all that start? Like who started it? Someone gave us, how did what start? Well, the, the hunting aspect. Oh, so like, okay. 
this is no short answer, right? So my like, <laughs> t- like t- my old man was born. This is kind of weird. My dad was raised by his grandparents. Okay. So to start getting a sense of like how much time, cha- how much life changed during his time on earth, like or how much his perception of life would have changed during his time on earth. When he was a little boy, he went to live with his grandparents. His grandparents were Italian immigrants. Okay. okay. His grandfather for his, for a living, his grandfather had, would take a horse and a wagon in Chicago to a large produce market and hotels and restaurants and stuff would buy produce. And he was a con, he would do contract delivery with a horse and wagon. I remember the horse's name was Pete. Okay. Okay. So like there was no, like there would have been no, like, you, you can't imagine someone like far, like his grandfather who, you know, by and large raised him. You, you can't imagine like someone farther away from sort of like recreational hunting and fishing. It was just <laughs> okay. not on yeah. the radar. But my dad was just drawn to it. Like he couldn't understand it. He would go down to the pier in Lake Michigan and fish yellow perch and sell yellow perch. He couldn't figure out where it came from. Was or it they, the fishing that he loved or the business He just aspect? wanted to be outside. No, just wanted to be outside. Got it. Um, he would go like, you know, I wish he was around now because you know, like when you dad, like your dad's alive and he, if people who have a dead, a dead dad will know what I'm talking about, where later you're like, man, I wish I could like have a couple of follow-up questions just to understand this better. But as you would explain it, he would, they would like jump trains, right? Like hop on trains right, and ride the rails, like ride trains out of the city and then jump off the trains in places where there's kind of like agricultural areas and kind of brushy rows along the, along the rail lines mm-hmm. and sort of illicitly like camp out and fish in the, in the little streams and creeks and like camp out in the brush rows and stuff. He just wanted to be outdoors. He, he had this foundation in, in, in the outdoors and this desire to be in the outdoors. And he didn't really understand. And he went and fought in World War II. And, and at the time, you know, when you were in the infantry and he called artillery and other things in the infantry, I mean, you just like, they walked and at night they dug a hole and slept in the hole. Now, after World War II and all these guys come home, they were restless, right? People were like, you know, you don't realize this now, but the post-war generation, that's who, that's who created the Hell's Angels. Okay. I did not know that. Like the Hell's Angels emerged out of these guys who were just like so insanely restless. It was difficult. Like a lot of people went on to have business, but a lot of people came home from World War II and they couldn't sit still. Mm. Right. And so you, you kind of have this progression after that of, you know, you think of like, oh, the greatest generation and these people who, you know, worked really hard and, Played by the rules, but there was an element of just craziness when people came home. And they, they just, he just really got heavy duty into hunting. Later, there's, there's a quote, uh, from the editor Outdoor Life. And, and I don't want to, I want to, I want to like give credit to the person that told me about the quote. So not only I'm not only crediting the quote, but I'm crediting who recently informed me of this quote is, um, the editor Outdoor Life later looking at like how we had the creation of the, modern American sportsman, okay, as a result of World War II. And he said, you can't teach an entire generation of young men how to camp and shoot guns and not expect them to become hunters. Who just recently told me that, I've been working on a documentary for almost two years now. As part of it, I was interviewing this environmental historian who had tracked 100 years of sporting magazines, and his name's Randall Williams, and he was telling me about this this like post-war generation. And it was this great surge in hunters, and my dad was very much part of that. As you'd explain, there was no sporting goods stores back then. They just hunted in their 
army clothes. Like he came home and got like became an avid hunter and they would wear that green wool. Mm -hmm. He talks about going across a field with a bunch of other GIs. Okay. Right in the years after world war two. And they're like lined up hunting rabbits in Southern Illinois in a cut cornfield. And someone shot their gun. He said half the people in the road just hit the deck. Just instinctually. Oh, boom, down on the ground. So he went like, he got, he was given a purple heart for, for like a non, he froze his feet in, in, in Europe and got a purple heart for freezing his feet, but never got scratched by a bullet. And he came home and got shot in the foot by his hunting buddy. No. No, they're hunting rabbits and the guy put a load of bird shot right into his foot. Oh my God. Did he so find all, humor in it at least? Yeah. Okay. No, he did. <laughs> so I was like all that, you know, he one time got a bullet hole through his poncho, he said, but never got scratched by a bullet, never got scratched by shrapnel and came home and got shot in the leg and randall williams the historian talks about there's this like during those years like the old perception of hunters having hunting accidents all the time really came out of that era because we didn't have like hunter safety we didn't have like a lot of the the safeguards in place that we have now and it was just people kind of like going rampant (laughs) and and anyone now like if you if you like are a person that lives in a urban or semi-urban area and hunting fish you're kind of like your legacy is kind of linked to the to the post-war generation. Is this all going to come out in the documentary? Yeah. And I mean, probably in like, you know, it's hard to get a lot done, man. Mm. When we get a lot done in the movie, but you run out of minutes, let's backtrack and then we'll work our way up to there and we'll work our way up to how you have three children. (laughs) And it probably makes it hard to get projects done. Your dad obviously introduces all of you guys into trapping first or hunting? No, we got into trapping a different way. My old man wasn't a trapper, but he got really into, so, so he became an avid bow hunter, right? And, oh, um, really? Back in the, back when no one bow hunted. Yeah. He, so he was involved with Pope and Young in the very early days. And he was involved with the influential archery organization called the Chicago Bowman. So he was involved and in, early on, he got involved in the fight to establish bow seasons. Really? You would have separate archery seasons. It was a real ax he had to grind. And he was like, so I have pictures of him. I have pictures of him from the 50s and 60s with like white tails and bears and stuff that he was killing with a recurve bow. With a recurve too? Yeah, and wooden arrows, man. Yeah. So he was, he got, he got big time into archery and he was, and when I was a little kid, that was kind of his main thing. His main thing was hunting white tails. He, he liked to hunt white tail deer with the bow. But we were just general, you know, they're not, we were like generalist hunters, generalist fishermen. I remember, so the big fur boom, like there's been many fur booms. I right? saw so one fur boom, when I say a fur boom is like a, like a radical escalation in fur prices. Okay. Like kind of the most, one of the most famous fur booms, of course, was what was going on between from the turn of the 1700s into the 1800s up until 1840. Beaver furs were very valuable and that spawned like what we now think of as the mountain man era and the great westward expansion searching for beaver pelts. Another big fur boom, not nearly as famous, was about 1978 to 1982 or 83 and fur prices went through the roof. Okay. Uh, courtesy of who? Fashion. Oh, okay. So like fur prices are tied to all kinds of crazy shit where fashion matters a lot. Different currency valuations matter a lot. And, uh, Fur prices went shot through the roof in 1978 around there. It was like 77, 78, but they like peaked out in 78 and stayed really high to 82. I was born in 74. So in 84, everybody still kind of like felt like fur prices were high when in fact they were beginning to drop off out of the stratosphere. Okay. I mean, they're like right. absurdly high guys in my area, like guys quit working to trap. Like you could, you could trap if you could catch a lot of muskrats. Like if you could catch, 
you know, four or five, 600 muskrats. And then mink, you know, coyotes hadn't moved in yet, but mink, fox, beaver, all this other stuff. I mean, you could do good for a few months. So we were fired up about trapping. And then my, we went out to Colorado where my half brother was an elk guide. The brother that was born, you know what I mean? The one I talked about that was born when my dad was going off to fight in World War II. He started a company, S's Park Adventures in Colorado. And it was an elk guide. And we went out there and hung out with him all summer. And he gave us a half dozen Victor number one single long springs. I have no idea what that is. So it's like, if you're going to look up like a trap yeah. in a encyclopedia, that would be the one. Okay, I got it. Well, I no, they would have one that had two, a spring on each side. Okay. So we took those six traps home from Colorado to back to Michigan, me and my two brothers. And then my old man lent us. If I remember right, I think he drew up like this contract where he lent us $24 and we bought one dozen 110 conibears or 110 body grippers. Okay. And we started trapping muskrats. Now, was this all around the same time when hunting was starting to get a bad rep? Does that, does the fur? No, it was like kind of a little bit before. Yeah, like hunting got it, like it was kind of a little bit before. Cause I, I watched the rise of like PETA, right? It was, it was a little bit before PETA was really kind of coming out. Yeah. Hunting, like, uh, uh, hunting approval rates were soon to be lower, like lower than they are now. Cause I think like the lowest point of just like general public approval of hunting was around in the eighties too. I could be wrong on that, but I think it was around the eighties and it hit an all time low. And then they, you know, in animal rights, people kind of got a little bit smart and started kind of dressing up their stuff as some kind of form of environmentalism. Mm-hmm. You know, and they sowed a confusion that still exists today. Was, so, was it warranted if there's no consumption of the animals that are being taken for fur? I don't. I mean, I mean, it's just that's like an impossible to answer question. Like, I, I'm not going to tell you that it was warranted. I mean, there's different. You'd have different purposes for it. I used to sell muskrat and beaver carcasses to sled dog racers, right? Mm. But yeah, a lot of it would be used for bait. A lot of it would just be disposed. I mean, you could argue like if you believe in nutrient recycling, you know. It's impossible to answer. It's just like, it's so subjective, right? But I'm fascinated by all of this. Cause when it comes to fishing, I can talk till I'm blue in the face about conservation and I haven't, I usually feel like I have an answer, but with hunting, I'm just so new to it. I'm, I'm learning every single time I sit down with one of you guys Yeah. and I'm going to throw some hard questions at you because I genuinely don't have answers for them. So if you want to look at, so if you're going to argue like what's the sort of the conservation or like the impact of trapping and wildlife conservation in the 1800s. So, like everything else, before we before the advent of regulations and closed seasons and bag limits, the the thing the animal that was most kind of like I guess the one example of a fur bearing animal that was extirpated across a lot of its range was the beaver, and that was from year old like f- from the creation of markets. Okay, so from from the introduction of European market forces into Native American culture, and then later Euro-American trappers coming in as well, led to the extirpation of beavers in a lot of areas. But you're also talking about this is when, you know, this is the sort of the same market factors and social factors that led to, you know, the extirpation of mountain lions in the eastern U.S., led to the extirpation of of Eventually, by 18, winter of 1881, 82, the extirpation of the buffalo across virtually all of its historic range in the United States and the bulk of its historic range in Canada, 
So yeah, there's like, there's some, you know, like trappers did, but see, there was like with, when they were decimating the beavers kind of like trapping and hunting, but now with, with, with bag limits, there's no, you can't point to a fur bear, right? Even with trapping practices today, there's no fur bear that's getting its range depleted or its numbers damaged in a long-term way because it's so tightly regulated. Mm, it sure is now. So you did know? your dad- Even like where I trap, you're like, you know, South M120, you're allowed like zero otters. M120 up to the Mackinac Bridge, you're allowed a otter. Mackinac Bridge across the Upper Peninsula, you're allowed two otters, right? Mm-hmm. Muskrat season be like open on November 10. You couldn't set within three feet of a lodge. Closed on X next date. Cannot touch any fur bear with a firearm. Can only use traps. Right. Okay. Limit of jaw size. Like, a, like check quotas. I mean, it's like very tightly because it's like, it's just like how you'd regulate any natural resource. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, a, a, a criticism, there's two big criticisms of trapping. You know, I, I'm open to the, I'm open to the idea that a reasonable person could find validity in each is there is an enhanced chance that the animal's going to have prolonged suffering. All right. And while people will kill an animal, eat the meat and discard the fur, trappers often kill an animal, keep the fur, discard the meat. So, yeah, but at the time I was doing it, I wanted I just wanted to be a mountain man. I wanted to be like Daniel Boone. <laughs> Daniel Boone was a hide hunter and that was my draw to trapping, right? Was your dad all about conservation at that point? Was no. he that forward thinking or no. he was still Very just Very few people were that grew. I didn't grow up around anybody that I didn't grow up around. I mean, you know, people might listen, like like people that I did grow up around might listen and think that that's harsh, but it wasn't something like, okay, to get, to sell your fur. I don't think it sounds harsh, by the way. I think it sounds honest. Yeah, but no, because because it's like, it's not, I was going to qualify that because for instance, where I would sell my fur, I would sell my fur at the Ravana fur auction. Okay. Okay. You couldn't sell at the Ravana Fur Auction if you were not a member of the Michigan United Conservation Club. Oh. And the, but the Michigan United Conservation Club, like at that time, conservation as the people that I grew up around perceived it, conservation was, was tied to enhancing, very specifically enhancing, growing and supplementing numbers of popular game species. It wasn't like, um, people didn't have this sort of broader, people that I grew up around weren't really espousing a broader ecological engagement, right? Where you're you're sort of like looking at like big picture issues. It was like Michigan steelheaders, okay? Michigan steelheaders had a thing where they wanted to hatch more damn steelhead out of hatcheries and get more steelhead in the rivers. And, And there was other groups like, how could you really call by contemporary standards? It's hard to really say that like trying to get and introduce trying to get a non-native population of fish up and running to try to like establish a non-native species of fish in the great lakes is hard to like really make an argument that that's conservation it's something it's something but it's just it it falls a little bit short of what we now think of now but I i did not grow up around and was not really taught necessarily ideas of restraint uh, was, was taught to have a lot of respect for the law because it's the law. Okay. Because like good people follow the law. Yeah. Especially with who your dad was. Yeah. So it was like, 
But no, we weren't, we weren't talking about ecology, right? Like we didn't learn about that stuff till way, way, way later. Yeah. And I don't think anyone should begrudge you that. No, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like hard to be apologetic about something that was, it's hard to like, if you like, my kid now, right? Yeah. I, I have three kids. I don't think that they're going to apologize about something they didn't know about when they're six years old. Like, no. <laughs> it's just like, you just didn't know it wasn't around. Yeah. And I now see as like, but I felt like early stirrings of some of this stuff. Okay. You know, I felt early stirrings, but it was a lot of times, uh, it was not in my backyard kind of issues. I, I mentioned like when they drained our lakes out, right? Mm-hmm. We were, we were like furious about like me, I was, my brothers were, we didn't like, we didn't want the lakes to be drained, mm-hmm. you know? And our dad, was for draining lakes oh, because why? he felt bad for people whose basements were flooding all the time. Ah, uh, got Other it. people were like, well, why would you dig a basement? Like, <laughs> to, you know, it's like you get like a dry year and all of a sudden you like recalibrate like where you're, you know, yeah. well today it's not wet. I'm going to put a basement down there. Right. <laughs> so it's hard to like have pity for him. But it's funny because my fishing mentor, besides my father, was this man named John Gary and John Gary was one of the main guys whose basement was always flooded. <laughs> and so, yeah, now I look, I'm like, what? Like, so this dude, John Gary, like, take this. If you want to understand, like, think about conservation and where it comes from and how people figured out about it. John Gary, I'm not shitting you. John Gary fished 200 days a year. People say that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. But John Gary kept track of two things in notebooks. Every book he read, okay, and he would read 75 plus novels a year. And he kept track of when he fished. And if the conversation came up, he would produce a book with detailed notes and he would walk you through his fishing. This guy fished 200 days a year. All he cared about was fishing. But when he weighed out in his head, where's my value system? He somehow valued a dry basement more than fish. No. Well, because I don't think he thought of it that way. I don't think he was like ever invited. Like he was never in a set of circumstances that would have put him to think like what's more important a wet basin or fish so he like all he did was fish but he never like thought he never would make the connection that drying reducing the risk of his basement getting water in it when there's a high water table i don't think he put together that what that meant for the thing he really liked to do right so, so it, uh, this is all shit I just think about all the time. Now. I'll tell you, yeah. Well, I just, I'm going to bring you back to when you're a kid. So you, you're the youngest with the two other brothers who are in the, the, house. the two brothers that I grew up with. Yeah, in yeah, the house with yeah. you. So dad's taking you all out together. Did you eventually start going out with your brothers without dad? Yeah. And, and then from there you started going out on your own? Yeah. Like, you know, you hear all this time now you hear about, uh, you know, the need to like take kids outdoors. Mm-hmm. Dude, it would have been, it was a laughable notion that my old man would be going hunting or fishing and you weren't invited. It was such a part of life. Okay. That I would feel guilty if I didn't go. Right. I was not, it wasn't like you have to go, but I would get, I would be like guilt ridden <laughs> if they went and I didn't go. If, and he respected it so much that if you were hunting or fishing or out trapping or something, he would not give you work. If he caught you doing other things that he thought were frivolous, he would like assign you chores that could not get done. That you wouldn't have enough time to do them. He would sit there with a legal pad and make chores until he hit the bottom of the legal pad. And like toward the end of the legal pad, he's just like making shit up. You know what I mean? Because he's <laughs> like, I'm going to list just 25 lines. I'm going to think of 25 chores. There was in that way, it was just kind of like an encouragement to do it. You know, but he really wouldn't mess with you if you were, Fishing. Where does John Gary come into play here? Was he friends with your dad? John Gary, he, he fought in World War II. And then how did you get to meet? I mean, I know he lived down the street. My middle name, 
everybody tells, like my dad always says that my middle name is because is my Stephen John Ranella. I was named after John Gary down the beach. Okay, so your dad and John were friends. They were contemporaries. Got it. World War II veterans. That is incredible. Okay, so he really did become. So he was like, when we were fishing, if our old man wasn't around and our line got tangled, we'd go to John Gary's house to untangle our line. Got it. I got the connection now. Okay, okay, okay. I'm happy. I should have been clear about that. No, it's all good. Yeah, John Gary's a dude down the beach, but in talking about him and his life, and the draining of the lakes and the ecology, that's kind of why I'm into, that's why he comes to mind often. It's got to think about that sort of contradiction, you know, the, the way yeah. people, the way people that I grew up with perceived conservation issues it's interesting. or didn't perceive conservation issues. Yeah. But it's cool. Cause you've been able to witness, especially being immersed with two other boys in your household and your father and John, you really have seen that mentality. And then you've obviously aged and here you are today with, you're experiencing what the mentality of the world is today. Yeah, my so, brother, my two brothers are PhD ecologists. Oh yeah. Yeah. One, one's fisheries and one's grassland ecosystems. So what happened after you left high school? I mean, I'm assuming you finished. I finished high school in 1992. I was still full balls trapping. I, I was, I was trying to become a professional trapper. I didn't really know what that would look like, but I had an idea of what that would look like. And I wanted to, I wanted to be a trapper. So was this the Daniel Boone fascination? No, by then I was just like, no, by then I was very modern focused. Nostalgia, like growing up reading about Daniel Boone and, and Jed Smith and Simon Kenton, that got me like interested in it because I wanted to, I wanted to be that I lived a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Not in any social way. I just thought that the stories of the mountain men are really cool. We have that in common. That literally drives me every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I wish that I was born like 200 years ago. Yeah, just to barefoot. see. I remember my, I remember my dad always telling me, he said, you were born too late. You were born too late. Yeah. So. But, but once I got more and more into trap and I became like very focused and a very modern, like it was like what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even, you know, all my buddies were applying to schools and, and, um, I didn't apply to any kind of colleges. I went down kind of like almost too late, but not. I went down and signed up for community college. Mm-hmm. I did two years at Mesquite Community College. And what a way I did it is I would only do the night classes. So I would go like three days a week, four days a week. No, I'd go four nights a week and it'd be like six to nine at night. And the worst schedule would be like, you know, sometimes I'd go like from five to 10 at night mm-hmm. to go to night classes because I was trapping during the day. Yeah. So I'd run trap lines. You know, I'd be running, you know, 75, 80 sets. And then I would go down and, um, do that. By that point though, my brothers had quit trapping. So they were off and they kind of, they like, they both moved up to the UP. And then we later became like, we later became very obsessive about steelhead fishing. And my brother, Danny, was the first one that really started to like start just getting way into steelhead. Great Lake steelhead. Very different fish. Same damn fish, but not, right? Just different, just not way different mentality. Sure, yeah. No, they were anadromous. Oh, they were then? Yeah. Really? Come out of the Great Lakes. Okay, okay. No, they do the same cycle. They yeah. didn't give a shit. They didn't okay. care that it was fresh water. They'd go out in the Great Lakes like it was the ocean gorge on smell alewives and stuff like that and then you know around november yeah depending on water levels october they'd start poking their noses up in the river kind of coming and going depending on stuff and then you know start spawning in april then you get runs up into early june we just travel north with the fish but they didn't go in the ocean they couldn't have gone in the ocean not in the ocean but they'd go out they'd go out to the great lake yeah but he started getting into that so by then i was the only one trapping they weren't trapping and i even like slowed down on hunting during a few of those years because i was trying so hard to become a trapper and i'd go to trapper trapping conventions and stuff i was way into it did it pay for your school no 
Okay. I mean, no, it was so hard. To make. I mean, you know, it was hard to make. You money. danced your way through school instead. It was hard to make money. I didn't spend. I, when I was going to community college, it was six hundred bucks a semester. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Because nice. I had good grades. I did good in high school. Yeah. So, and if you're like in state and all this other kind of stuff, no, that didn't cost me. And I lived with my mom and dad. Then I left. Uh, I, I tapped out in community college. Like you only go two years. Mm-hmm. Then I moved up to the moved up to the UP and did a semester at Lake State University. And then I just fell in love with school. With school? Yeah. What part of school? I just like to learn stuff. And okay. I was hanging out with, fr- and then I was like hanging out with people who were real serious, more serious about academics. Mm-hmm. And we were all kind of like finding out what we wanted to do. It was really invigorating. Right. And I fell in love with school. I remember I went to a fur buyer and sold all my shit. What? Everything. Wait, for to nothing. Be, wait, to be I had hundreds, what? hundreds of traps. To be an academic? No, I just was going to become a writer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. And I always kind of knew I liked to write. You know, it was like I knew those, the thing, the, 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 the subject matter I was most interested in was writing. You know, always did well at it, enjoyed it, and was encouraged by a teacher I had in high school. But, yeah, once I hit, like, once I went up to Lake State and saw, like, what actually going to college was like, because going to night classes at a community college and living at your mom and dad's, it's just different. It's different, yeah. So, once I went up there, man, I was just fired up, you know, and, um, and I loved it up there, but I could, then I was, then I focused in on, I wanted to, like, study writing, and they, they didn't have a good writing program. They had, you could get, like, an English, now I realize it probably didn't matter, but they had, like, different emphases, you know. They didn't have a writing emphasis. So then I bailed on, uh, my friends and I was living with my brother in the UP. And, um, all we ate was, you know, I remember, what I do remember about it fondly is we just lived on fish and game because we had the St. Mary's River. We'd, we'd buy, you know, this is pre 9-11. So you just like drive over to Canada. No one gave a shit. They'd, yeah. they'd recognize you. Cause you'd like the guys that fish and yeah. you'd buy like bridge passes and punch cards. We'd, <laughs> we'd go to, we'd fish for, uh, we'd go over and fish for pinks and kings. Every, not every night. That's an exaggeration, but three, four times a week. We just ate fish, grouse, woodcock, shot a lot of deer with our bows, ate a lot of deer. It was the great, it was like, it was the most, it was a formative four months of my life. And God, it seems like it was like years, but it wasn't. It was just months. And then I like, then I like bailed. And went down to, went down to Grand Rapids, Michigan, moved down there and then started hunting more like out toward Lansing, kind of hunting sort of my like uh, Muskegon County, Nuego County, Allegan County over by Lansing and fishing the, and primarily fishing the Grand. And we started fishing downtown GR very heavy for steelhead and lake trout. Cause it's funny cause there is like one of the great native fish in the Great Lakes is lake trout. Yeah, man, you could go down in November and there'd be Lakers up in there. By then, I was becoming kind of like the worst kind of fisherman who like uh keeps track of numbers with a, writing down hash marks <laughs> on your dashboard and shit like that. You know, I'm not ridiculous. even gonna say anything. It's just ridiculous. Not even man. saying anything. Okay. Yeah, I remember like one year. I can't remember what year it was. One year, and 
I was all full of myself. Uh, and it was like, cause I had, you know, managed to catch like 42 steelhead or something in the spring. <laughs> it was just worse. And then, and that led into, so doing that led into us wanting to fish bonefish real bad. Okay. As soon as I got done with regular college, we went down and just camped on the beach in Mexico for a month and fished bonefish and then did that for a little while. Then when I moved to Montana for grad school, I gave up that shit as quickly as I gave up trapping. What, bonefishing? Steelhead, bonefish, any of that kind of stuff. Why though? I mean, your face right now, you look like you've got this disdain on your face. <laughs> no, I just what like, I just it? grew sick of it, man. There was like this kind of moment that I, when I, when I like really gave up on, because during that time, okay, so during that time when I was fishing steelhead, we would eat a lot of fish yeah but for whatever we native fish like we'd be like eating native fish all the time but we had this idea like you didn't want to kill too many steelhead so we'd let a lot of steelhead go and we'd even like look down on a dude like you'd see some dude fishing he always doesn't know what he's doing and he'd hook a you know he'd bring in a fish hooked on the belly and he'd slip a stringer in it and we'd be like pissed you know maybe even confront him about it were you still keeping numbers at this point oh you were but you'd see a guy like kill a (laughs) foul hook you'd see a guy kill a foul hook fish and you'd even like say something to him right like fish wasn't hooked man and um now it just seems so like hypocritical just like hypocritical and just bullshit where we're like you're like you're eating all kinds of fish you know and then here's this like non-native introduced fish and you're pissed because some guy kills one and drags it home when you're like you're having 10 fish days and thinking you don't have any steelhead blood on your hands. You said it. Yeah, you're killing <laughs> fish, man. So, you're but, killing fish. But, and you know, it's funny now, cause now like my brother knows more about fish than, I don't want to say more than, way more than most people. Yeah. But did and, you get um, bored because were you spin fishing for him? Did you try? Fly no, fishing? no, we fly fish for him. You were fly fishing yeah. for him. Okay. So you did get bored though. Yeah. And I remember we went down, so we were down in Mexico fishing bonefish for a month and we just buy like, Big bags of rice and big bags of beans and backpack down in the sea and con biosphere preserve in the Yucatan. And we'd carry, like, we'd kind of be limited how long we could go out by how much water we'd carry. So we'd just have jugs of water and ropes and shit, you know, walking down yeah. the beach. <laughs> and we'd fish bonefish, you know, the sun would get good at 10 a.m., fish till 2, you know, catch a bonefish, let them go. And we'd go out, like, around the afternoon, we'd go out and find these deep channels, you know, casting little streamers and shit down on those channels and catching all manner of fucking snapper and stuff. We didn't know what they were. Just fish. Yeah. And we go eat all those fish. But where'd the boredom so, come from? I'm so lost not, by this. No, no, it wasn't boredom. It was just like a <laughs> spiritual awakening, right? Okay. Yeah. That, that like that we'd have all these arbitrary things. Like we're like, Oh yeah, you don't, you know, just cause you just like a, you're just adopting things you learn from other people. Mm. So all these ideas that, that there's like, there's like these fish that, like the catch and release fly fishermen, they just adopt these ideas of what is okay to kill and not kill. Like I meet tons of catch and release fishermen. They'll, they'll fish and they like dass and touch a fish, right? But they'll go to a restaurant to eat fish. So it's like, why is that fish all right to eat? You like, just, cause you don't know where it came from. Yeah. It's, you're just opening up my hunting conversation. Is yeah. What you're doing so here. it's like, I, not that I grew bored by it, but I just like became like disillusioned by it. And at this time I was more like, we had a lot of wild game when I was a kid, but that wasn't all we ate. But by this time I had, I was like pretty committed to just, I would just eat wild game. And so I just got like, I just got confused by all these, like these kind of like arbitrary things that people don't really think through about that. There's that there's like, just our, our kind of attitude or like ideas. Like I got a friend one day, he's talking about, Oh, we must've caught a, you know, we caught a hundred steelhead. I was like, call my brother and ask him how many steelhead you killed. My brother's like, you probably killed 10. 
Yeah, there's obviously there's obviously a mortality rate. Right. So then I was like, why not just go catch one and eat it instead of like thinking you're all pure and like Joe River runs through it. And I'll point out in the book, River runs through it. They killed all those goddamn fish. But walk me through your mentality. I mean, I'm starting to piece it all together. I'm starting to piece it together. But so you were catching mostly for retention or mostly for your own what species steelhead. So was it retention or recreation or a mixture of both? It was probably now looking at it. I wouldn't have said, I wouldn't describe it this way, but looking at it now, it was like, we just like to be out of doors. Yeah. We like to fish. We had a lot of friends that all fish steelhead and there was a certain amount of, uh, there was probably driven in some way by a certain amount of like friendly rivalry among friends. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just, and also just wanderlust. We just a horrible wanderlust. We just like to be outside, but we like, man, like any, you know, any pink salmon across our path is going to die. You know, no one in the world's going to let a walleye go. Yeah. I remember I had this girlfriend that lived in, uh, I remember I had this girlfriend from Sarajevo. She was like, uh, the war was going on, you know, there was war torn. And, and our school took a bunch of sort of like academic refugees and I remember taking her fishing and in, in the, in the grand and we caught a steelhead. <laughs> and, and like, she was not open to the idea of letting that fish go. And I remember we ate that one. We, we, we'd eat them now and then, you know, but just now it just seems so funny that we were like hell bent on sort of like trying to like not harm this, this, uh, introduced invasive. Yeah. Totally understand. You know, it's just like, it just seems like, so you know what I'm saying? But it's like a thing you adopted from people and you didn't really think it through. So later yep. once I started thinking about it and just, yeah, I don't know, just the desire one way, but I, but the same thing. That is like my, my thing with trapping kind of went away, but that was large because it was so, it was as fur prices drop, 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 drop. And then global economies were changing so much. It became untenable, right? Yep. So here's my question for you then. If the steelhead were wild, would you wild have, native fish? Yeah. Like in BC. Well, I can tell you what I would say now, but I wouldn't have said at the time because walleye were wild native fish. We kill every walleye we ran into. Yeah. But could the numbers <laughs> handle it? Right. Could the fisheries walleye handle it? Walleye can handle it. Right. I mean, nowadays yeah. a lot of the fisheries with wild steelhead, they just simply can't yeah, handle it. Yeah. Is it safe then? So to yeah, say, if I had grown up on the Pacific coast yeah. and was fishing like wild born steelhead, mm-hmm. I don't know. I wasn't. Yeah, it's and I'm already and I'm already in the position, right? I'm already in the position of trying to sort of like from 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 a great distance. Now I'm talking about activities I was engaged in 20 years ago. I'm trying to from a great distance, 20 plus years ago in some cases, understand my thinking and and things that I didn't take the time to articulate back then. I can't transport that to another biome. Yeah. And, and have any real guess about it. That's know? fair. So let's go on. I'm just, I'm walking myself through the timeline. So is it safe then to say that hunting took over your passion for, for your fishing? No, no, I've always fished a lot. Okay. So I fished well, today. You did? Where? Because we're in Washington right now. Olympic Peninsula. Did, how, wait, you were in the OP today? Yeah, we drove out this morning. No way. Fish, just for the day? Fish surf perch for four hours and drove back. How'd you do? Good. Nice. Yeah. So what's the next step then? So if the next step is gotta you clean them. No, not today. <laughs> you shit. No, I mean when you're when you're younger and you stop the steelhead fishing. I know that you didn't go inside. So what happened with the writing? Where what's where does the story go from here? Oh, like oh, so you're saying where did the, all of my steelhead energies? Where did they go? Well, I moved to Montana. Okay, for grad school. For grad school. God, it's still focusing on writing. I went to, I got an MFA in creative writing. You did? Yeah. At that point, I had no idea what I was going to do. But when you set your mind to something, you get it done. Yeah. There's only two things I knew I was going to do in my life. Yeah. I was wrong about one and right about one. What are they? 
well, I was going to be a mountain man. I was wrong about that. Now I was going to be a writer and was right about that. You're kind of a bit of both, aren't you? No. Okay. What's your definition no, not, of a mountain man? A guy that was alive, but the guy that was trapping beaver in the Rocky Mountain West between the years of 1806 and 1840. <laughs> okay. 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 So where does the story, yeah, where did your energy go from there? Oh, I moved to Montana and there's just like so much big game. You know, we'd always hunted, always avidly hunted deer, mm-hmm. but, um, I just had to figure out all that. I had to figure out mountain hunting. And when you, if you're trying to, if you're like a student of mountain hunting in a place that has a lot of mountain hunting, there's not a lot of room for anything else. We yeah. still fish through the ice because I always like, we fished through the ice a lot when growing up. Um, I lived in ice fishing country. My dad, my mom and dad, their honeymoon, they rented a ice shanty cabin like that you sleep in. Yeah. We always fish through the ice because there's nothing else to do in the winter. So in Montana, we fish through the ice and we do some other fishing, but primarily we fish through the ice. And then I like took on the long, arduous, painful process of mountain hunting. Okay. And that's still my specialty today. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk to you yeah. about that. Okay. So you when I say on, my specialty, it's the thing that I'm most interested in. What were you using at this point? Were you using guns, bows? Both. I would hunt archery from hunt. You know, I, I, I set to over, over the course of, I spent 10 years very focused on trying to kill elk with a bow and we would hunt with our bows from around September 2nd, September 3rd up to about October 10. Then we'd hunt hard, right? And I was in graduate school, but we would like do that very hard. And then we'd hunt in black bears. Earliest I ever killed a black bear was April 17. Season would open April 15. We'd start seriously looking for bears May 6th, mm-hmm. hunt bears pretty hard up until early, you know, first week of June, depending on where you were. Some zones are open till June 15th. And then hunt a lot of antelope with firearms, hunt a lot of mule deer with firearms, a lot of waterfowl, a lot of upland birds. But the thing I focused on, the, what I would bow hunt for was elk. And, and when I bow hunt, I bow hunt, I'm generally bow hunting, bow hunting seasons. So... We'd hunt with a bow all that long, long season. And out of those 10 years, and again, this is starting from scratch, man. This is being a dude that came from Michigan. Out of those 10 years, I killed four elk with a bow. It's hard. Yeah, it is hard. And but even then, that was above, that was above statistics. So that took a lot of energy. When did the compound bow really come into, like, when did it get fine tuned? Oh, we started shooting, um, I remember my old man getting a compound bow. I remember him, I remember, I remember being a very little kid. And my dad getting, my dad getting his first compound. Oh, so they've been around for a while. Oh yeah. Okay. Now how old are you when you're in Montana at this point? I was born in 74 and moved to Montana in 96. Just finished college. Still pretty young. It took me like a little, it took me like an extra semester to finish college. Fair and enough. And I enrolled in graduate school and it took me an extra year to go through graduate school. Okay. Not married at this point? No, no, I didn't get married till way later. And then what about your career? I'm going to start getting into your career now. Where does that start to come into your mind? At this point, are you thinking, I think I kind of want to dive into this industry or were you just focused on, on writing? And no, you- I went, to, I went to graduate school knowing I wanted to be a magazine writer. And, and oh. at the time, University of Montana, it was, first off, I should point out, it was a very difficult school to get into. Mm. And I was kind of shocked that I got in there. I was offered a full ride to go to Colorado State in Fort Collins and I had to pay to go to University of Montana. But one of my best friends and hunting and fishing buddies who we lost, who died a couple years ago, um, he had moved out to Montana. And I remember we were sitting in, in Bo Nicky's bar, man. And it was right around when like, I think it was right around the time of the OJ trial, maybe. Cause I feel like one time, I feel like we were having this conversation and then we were like watching that like shit where he was driving around that Ford Bronco. Yeah. It was like some, some aspect of the juice trial, right? 
and uh, I was like, man, I got to go to, you know, I said, I know I want to move to Montana, you know, but I got to go to Colorado State. Just doesn't make any sense to pay for school and you can get paid to go to school. And he's like, dude, hunting and fishing in Colorado fucking sucks. Oh. He's like, it's so much better in Montana. <laughs> just, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's just like telling me this. Is that true? No, it was just like what he's telling me, like his, his perception. Cause he <laughs> lived in Montana, right? It was like, like classic state pride, you know, yeah. he's like, Oh, it's like all John Denver's down there, you know? <laughs> so it was, it was just like a funny conversation. So I'm like, yeah, you know, you're probably right. And so I just like moved to Montana. <laughs> um, I remember I traded, a I cut for money through high school and college. I cut firewood. So I'd cut firewood in summer and season it hardwoods. Like I'd cut oak and beech tops. And then over winter break, I would go sell all that wood. But I was doing millwright work right when I left. I remember I traded a husk bar and a chainsaw, knowing I wasn't going to be cutting wood anymore. Traded a husk bar and a chainsaw and $250 for a Ford line van. And my dad helped me build a bed in that van and put in a stove and shit. And I just drove to Montana. Coming up, Stephen and I continue chatting about his career, conservation, cuisine, and my ongoing question about ethics. Again, thank you to Yeti for their support. Head on over to www.yeti.com and check out The Hopper, built for those adventures where you just want to grab your gear and go. It's the original 100% leak-proof, ice-for-days portable cooler. Made from materials found in things like survival suits, it's also tough as nails. I've brought my hopper with me on boats, helicopters, rafts, and I even use it as my airplane carry-on. Again, check them out at www.yeti.com. My place. I live on the Bulkley, so I've got... I don't know that do you know where Smithers is? Mm-hmm. So I've got 20 acres just on the river up there, and mm-hmm. there's nothing there. I lived in a like a wall tent for the last few years, and then oh, okay. an ice storm took it down. So I put in this like little cabin thing. But that's my more like every morning I wake up and I fish for a slight, and then I go get grouse. And on my way to go get grouse, I go and I get all my wood, and it's the same thing. So where all the guys have come in and taken all like put all the big phone lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just go and I clean up. No, and it's great, surreal because it's it's, they take all the stuff they want, but it's perfect for what I need. Yeah, right? yeah. And I mean, it's all like laying like this, so it's all gridded anyway for me. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's gridded. Yeah. It's a good word for it. So talk to me <laughs> about the first time that you made money in the outdoor industry. Then I mean, you've made money through trapping, obviously, and you made money with wood. That's technically yeah. And do I worked for many, many places like on and off jobs and my friend Ronnie Bame, uh, he was a millwright and worked for him and um, doing, you know, labor. He was, uh, he installed material handling equipment and I would work for him. I just had like a patchwork of things I would do, right? And I, mm-hmm. Just ways I could make money. Even one summer I had some time, extra time and even sold, uh, sold some turtle meat. You know, I'd just do various things. And I was finished, I was getting close to being done with graduate school and I met a writer there's a lot of good writers floating in around Missoula. I went to school and I met a, a, the writer Ian Frazier. Now Ian Frazier has written many books, but a, a book that I admired a great deal was his book, Great Plains. And he was a New Yorker staff writer for a long time. He came and did this like four day workshop for, you know, at, at school, right? As part of grad school, I wrote, I wrote a thing about eating wild mushrooms that you weren't quite sure what species they were. <laughs> okay. And then the anxiety of, like waiting to see if you would get poisoned. Has it happened to you? Yeah, I got like I've gotten sick from mushrooms, but just like not not like the not the neurotoxin kind, just like the upset stomach kind, okay, you know. Good, yeah. But I wrote this piece about going and um, you know, you kind of like you'd find a mushroom and you're pretty sure you know what it is, but you're not entirely sure. 
And, uh, and it was particularly focused around a time when we had gone and we were camping down in the St. Joe's River in Idaho. We were down there fishing cuts and eating mushrooms. I remember one night we had, I can't remember what it was, seven or eight different species of wild mushrooms, right? Some we'd never seen before. We are just like making like a stir fry. Together? Were you drinking, yeah, and then like that, too? and then that night being like, ah, oh, dude, like this is the way we're not going to get sick. So you know you I, can't drink with half those, right? Oh yeah. Like no. I cook shaggy mains for all. Like I've guys never had I that can't. problem, but I've seen so many people get sick. Oh, I get guys get sick all the time, just and I'm like, dude, I told you not to drink if you're eating shaggies. Like yeah. there's things that you just don't. Just mix. even a glass of wine, violently mm, ill. Nothing. Man. Yeah, I never, I've never had that problem, but man, I've witnessed it with a lot of people, and, and not, I'm not talking like being shit faced either. I mean, just like a glass of wine, One. a beer, yeah, and they're puking, and like I got poison. I'm like, you didn't get poisoned. It's different than. <laughs> so, but, so he saw this story I had, and he liked it a lot. I feel like he sent it off. He sent it off to someone at Harper's because at the time Harper's Magazine had this thing up front. Maybe they still do. They had this like thing called like collected readings up front, and he sent it to Harper's, and the editor called. And I was real excited that I was going to sell this story, and she's kind of like, "Yeah, you should keep at it. You know, this one isn't right for us, but keep at it." And then I didn't see, uh, I didn't see Ian Frazier for a while, but I had two like very good mentors in, in graduate school, Fred Hayfley and, and Deirdre McNamer. And, and they're both, you know, they both have a lot of books. Deirdre's a novelist and Fred is a nonfiction writer, magazine writer. And, um, they were both helping me out all the time and really trying to like get me set up to, to figure out how I was going to do this. And they were influential on me, like learning the craft. Well, like I learned the craft from them. Right. But as far as the, the, the business facing aspect, I had like kind of my, my big break in a weird way. Once I knew what I was doing was uh, a, a friend of mine came and, and told me how Ian Frazier really wanted to go. He'd never hunted deer. So he'd written all about the West, right? He wrote like great plains. Oh, he later on went right a you know, mile long book about Siberia, but he'd written about the Great Plains. He'd written about Pine Ridge Reservation. He'd lived up around, uh, Big Fork, Montana and written a lot of pieces for the New Yorker about grizzly bears and all this kind of other stuff. But, uh, he, he had gotten to where he wanted to understand hunting and wanted to go on a hunt. So my brother and I took him and another writer. We went down and did a river trip for mule deer and spent four days floating the river and we got, he got a mule deer. He had a spike horn buck and, um, was, was moved by it. Right. Moved by it. And I remember we got to the takeout and I don't know how it came up, but I was kind of like facing the end of graduate school and no real idea what I was going to do. And I knew that there's no way I was going to accept any other outcome besides like being a writer. And I don't know what happened, but he kind of like, uh, took some kind of pity on me or we'd spent some time together and, and, and he kind of maybe understood where I was coming or what I, what I needed. At this point, I was kind of most excited about a piece I wrote where when I was living in Sault Ste. Marie, there's a hydroelectric dam there. The Sioux Edison, uh, Sioux Edison's a power company. And what they do is they peel some water off of the St. Mary's river and, and run it down a grade that kind of runs through town through like a hydroelectric canal and run it into this big thing that has like 40 some turbines and it spills back into the St. Mary's. And this hydroelectric canal would get a lot of, uh, a lot of mayflies would hatch in the hydroelectric canal. And where all that, where that thing dumped back into the St. Mary's, fish would just stack up in the turbines. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there was, for whatever reason, because the flows were different, I'll tell you an inter- interesting story about this this dam too, and I'm done with this, but the flows were different or something because it was like turbine number 27 
and turbine number 28 were very, very good for Great Lakes whitefish. Okay. So it was a lot of competition to get those turbines. Okay. Yeah. And my brother and our buddy Matt Drolls kind of pioneered this idea of that you just go to the bar till the bar closed and then just get in your boat at two in the morning. Okay. Yeah. Cause old men don't get up till five, Sixth right? Spot, yeah. Get in your boat at two in the morning and we would go and just, and there was these cement, there's these like concrete anchor studs into the tops of the turbines mm-hmm. and we would pull our boat into the turbine and it'd be warm in there. Like the air temperature's warm in there. And we would just tie off to the stud and just sleep in sleeping bags in a rowboat. And then the old men, when they'd get up, they'd go nosing in there and you'd be in there sleeping. There. <laughs> they would have hated you. Oh, yeah, to be pissed. So then we'd back out and just, you just cast little flies up into the, and we'd tip them with maggots up into the turbine and drift it back. <laughs> and you'd be hooking fish right under your boots. You know what I mean? And sometimes steelhead too. And I wrote a story about this. And he sent it to who, the woman who's been my editor outside. He sent it to Mary Turner um, in, in spring of 2000. And she called me up and, and bought my article for $4,000. No, your first real... Right before I finished grad school. Unreal. Yeah, yeah. changed my life. It would have. At that point, yeah, at that point, it was the... I mean, without even fucking like... like by 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 a factor of 10 it was the happiest day of my life and and I'll tell you it, a peace settled over me that I cannot explain and it lasted for days and the, it was such like like the it was the the, ang, the the release of anxiety was so much that that I was kind of like it was kind of like I was uh it, it was like I was on heroin to where I couldn't do anything. <laughs> we went up to Hot Springs. We went up to Hot Springs, Montana. And just I just hung around at the Hot Springs for two days. I couldn't... I, it was like... I couldn't do... I, honestly, I couldn't do something. You were just so... It was all ecstatic. I could do to just to like feed myself. It was like I was drugged. Was it because of all those years of trying... Just wondering what I was going to do with my life. And then you and then knew, knew this was it. Like they say in Apocalypse Now, hit me like a diamond bullet. Right. Okay, so then yeah. what do you do after you feed yourself? Started interest? writing my ass off. Okay, so now do you go straight into a book? Did you write your first book at this point? No, it took me a while to write a book. I didn't publish my first book till 2004 or five. What was it called? The Scavenger's Guide to Oak Cuisine. And it was an expansion, well, expansion is not quite the right word, but it was a, a major expansion of a magazine article that I wrote for Outside. Oh, okay. Was it focused on cuisine? Yeah. It was like my friend, dear, the, the novelist, Deirdre McNamer, gave me a copy of a very old cookbook that she found uh, called Le Guide Culinaire by Scoffier. So earlier I mentioned Apocalypse Now, like the diamond bullet. Okay. If, you, if you're a fan of Apocalypse Now, and you ought to be, you know the chef that wants to go find mangoes, and they get off the boat and go in the jungle to find mangoes and get like attacked by the tiger? And the chef comes back. He's like, never get off the boat. While they are going into the jungle to look for mangoes, he says that he was the saucier at a restaurant and, and, and talks about like the, the tradition of a scoffier. If you've ever uh, heard of Melba Toast or Peach Melba or Grand Marnier or Ritz, the Ritz Hotels, like Ritz Carlton Hotels, Ritz was the hotelier. The scoffier was Ritz's chef. Oh. So he wrote, he was the one, he, he's credited with, 
codifying French high cuisine. So there's always been a tradition of French high cuisine, but he sat down in 1903 and published a 5,000 recipe compendium. And he's like the one that like wrote down the principles of French oat cuisine. Huh. Scoffier. She finds this old book from 1903. Right. I mean, her, hers wasn't published in 1903. It's been reprinted many times. But it was an old version. It was like a 1954 version of a Scoffier's book, which was originally published in French in 1903. And I get to looking through it and it's like insane shit that no one is eating. Okay. Um, like what? What's an example? Fish semen, street pigeons, crayfish, pig bladders. Uh, trotters, like the wild game. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wild game recipes in it. Right. Because they like, you know, eating wild game in Europe in a commercial sense is like a lot different than here in, in North America because, um, in Europe, they don't have the kind of game laws that have made it, you know, when you own land in Europe, you own the animals on them. It's a really shitty system. And our systems are kind of a repudiation of the European system, which favored the aristocracy and the landed. But, Wild game is like much more of a staple in Europe and, and certainly was during Scoffier's time. Everything like diamondback terrapins, he's got recipes for shit that was extinct, that later became extinct. And, and, um, and I remember looking through it and being like, man, the only way a guy would, the only way now that you're going to cook the food he cooked would be that if you hunted and fished. Cause you're not going to buy the stuff. You'd have to like catch it yourself. Yeah. And so I did like a piece and outside about the book, kind of explain the book and about some of my um trials and tribulations trying to, to capture baby street pigeons, um, which are or squab. So a squab, when you go to a restaurant, you go to them still today, if you're into fancy restaurants, you'll see squab on the menu. A squab is simply a flightless pigeon less than one year old. So and I wrote about like uh, snapping turtles. He ate a lot of turtles, and it's funny because when you're looking at Escoffier's books, like he starts out under the assumption that turtles that you got a sea turtle that's still alive. What? Yeah, he's like, take the sea turtle and lay it on its back and hook a meat hook into its lower jaw, hang, mean, hang a big heavy weight on, from it. Stop. What percent of these recipes were uh, battling your integrity and/or the law? Well, that's what uh, I spent a lot of the book talking about substitutions, right? Because right. I was using American snapping turtle for, well, you know, there's still a season for terrapins. Like he cooked with terrapins, which is a, which is like a, a, a type of turtle species native, you know, from Maryland and, and areas in the American Southeast. He cooked with terrapins and he cooked with various sea turtles. So I did his recipes using American snapping turtles. So I talk a lot about substitutions. So some things I didn't have to use substitutions at all because like street pigeons are street pigeons. Uh, Columba, Columba Livia, I think is what it is. Uh, and here they're deleterious non-native in North America. They were actually introduced in the New World along the St. Lawrence Seaway by the French. This is, were you interested in cuisine before? Oh, yeah. Or you were? Yeah, because if you hunt and fish a lot, you get interested in it because yeah. no one, someone's got to cook it. Right? I know. I'll be honest with you. One of the number one reasons I wanted you on the show is, I mean, obviously I'm curious about your upbringing and your I'm curious about everybody's upbringing in their lives, but the cuisine aspect for me and just how into it you are is absolutely fascinating. I start, well, so it is how it started with yeah, your to touch on, Well, to touch on that, like my dad had a uh, commercial grade deep fryer that he bought at a restaurant liquidation sale before I was born. Yeah. And all, it's not an exaggeration to say that 90% of the wild game I had as a kid went through that deep fryer. And I still love, I'm like an unapologetic fryer of fish, right? Right. Um, we still eat a lot of fried fish, but 
in nine, I started getting interested in food in 1995. Okay. What was the response to the book? Or how was the response to the book? When my book came out? Mm-hmm, in 05, the cuisine. Oh, it was, uh, critically acclaimed. It didn't sell shit. You didn't sell any copies? No. Why? I don't know why. Okay. It got f- fucking <laughs> critically, like, I got like tons of press, tons of media, right? Yeah. Critics, like, it was like people loved it. No one bought it. Okay. Is it still for There's sale a lot online? of reasons. I, I could get into like a lot of like business reasons why. So here's the biggest problem. Can we find it online though? Can people find it? Oh, my, my current publisher republished it. It's out. And how are sales now? Good. Awesome. Okay. But I mean, not like, you know, it's never been like a media. I mean, it's like a old title now, right? Yeah. But she, my current publisher, Spiegel and Grout Random House, that, that she just has a, as a act of kindness to me. So, so I, I sold my first book to Miramax. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, everybody knows the film company, Miramax. Shoot, they had yeah. a publishing division, Miramax. And, and the guy that bought it, the editor that bought it, bought it and then left the company to go run another company Ooh. before I even turned my manuscript in. Unfortunate. Yeah. The real upside. So when I, when I talk bad about that publishing experience, my wife points out the first time I ever stepped foot in New York City, I just got no, not just, yeah. No, no, I was in, I was in a relationship with someone who was born in Boston and we met in Montana and, uh, we're living, she was like doing a writing fellowship up in Rhode Island. So I was staying in Rhode Island and, and in this, I'll just point out just for people who like to fish, this house in Rhode Island was like out on stilts over to saltwater. Oh, cool. And I could cast, I just, when I was trimming deer steaks at night, I'd take little chunks of deer fat and gristle yeah. and put it on a hook and cast it off the deck. And then lay the rod on the living room floor while we're watching movies and pinch a piece of masking tape on the line. No. And you'd see that masking tape start creeping across the floor and it was because <laughs> eels. We'd get eels off the deck. Ah, uh, hey, they're pretty tasty. Yeah, and you see that line go across the bedroom floor or across the living room floor and pick up the rod and haul a reel, eel in over the deck oh, rail. Oh, you're a junkie. It was okay. hilarious. So, but at the time, so I sold my book and, and went to New York for the first time I ever went to New York and met my wife. Who's from Michigan, but she worked oh, for Miramax. The wow. first time I ever walked in New York, I met her. That is incredible. Okay. You know, and, and then, then, but I had a girlfriend at the time and then year, a couple of years went by and, uh, my relationship with her ended and I vowed, uh, I was like, man, I'm never going to, I'm only going to date girls from Michigan from now on. And then we started to date and she was from Michigan. It's amazing that you guys have got three boatload of kids. kids together. It's fantastic. <laughs> so that's how I met her. But it was a bad, yeah, it was a really, it was a really bad, it was a really negative, like publishing that book, as good as it was for my career, was like, like, uh, psychologically very taxing. It would have been. So how did you get back on the horse and write your second one? How many have you written? Like five? Yeah. Okay. So how did you get back to the second one? It, it just, it almost doesn't make sense where I, well, there's the business story and the book story. Which one do you want? Both of them. All right. So the book story is, uh, we were bow hunting elk and we were pretty high up in the mountain. We were like 9,500 feet above sea level in Southwest Montana. And I was hunting bow hunting for elk with my two brothers. My one brother lived in Alaska and one of my brothers lived with me in Montana. And the Alaska one was down to hunt with us. And I was walking behind those guys and I saw my brother in front of me the ground like he kicked at something nudge something with his boot as he's walking you know if you're walking you kind of like nudge something mm-hmm. and when i get up i was like what i try to look to see what he was booting at as he walked by and i see this like circle of bone 
sticking out of the ground. This it was like a hole. It was like a bone hole, you know, looked like an eye socket. And I kicked that too. It was just rock solid, right? Right. So I stopped and started digging. And I dug up a buffalo skull. Oh, cool. Yeah. And there hadn't been, it was obviously very old, right? And there hadn't been buffalo living there since when, when Theodore Roosevelt came out and tried to kill his second buffalo. It wasn't that far from there, actually. But there hadn't been buffalo roaming in that area for a long, long, long time. A mm-hmm. hundred plus years. Right. So I took that skull and just started doing a lot of research on the area and skulls and the animal. I later had a radio, I had a radio carbon dated and I took it to Oxford University, you know, in England to have a genetic line pulled from it. Wow. And I got pretty interested in this skull. Yeah. I have it upstairs and then I knew I was going to write something about that shit. I knew I was going to write something about Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And then it happened to be that then I drew a tag for, I drew a tag for the Copper River. Buffalo, or, you know, when I say buffalo, I'm talking about bison, bison, American bison, American buffalo. Um, people have been calling them buffalo way longer than they've been calling them bison. But I drew a tag for the Copper River hunt in Alaska. The year I drew it, they gave out 24 tags. You have about nine months to hunt. And when you draw the tag, they send you a letter in the mail being like, you're basically screwed. You know, I mean, it's like a very difficult hunt. They kind of like, they try to like, it sounds like they want to like discourage you. But the year I did, they gave out 24 tags and only three of us got a buffalo. Why did they give out the tags? Is it some sort of con, it's obviously got to have a conservation spin to it. Well, it's really complicated. You mean why, why conservation spin to it? What like, you mean? Why even give out the tags? Why is there even a season on them? Well, because there they have kind of an uneasy relationship with the state. Oh, so, okay. So it's more po- political. Is that what No, it is? no, not at all. It's, I mean, this, I mean, you, how many, how many hours do you have? Okay. So, <laughs> geneticists will argue about this all day long, but there's, we now accept, there's, there's a general, a general consensus, not an, not an, not an academic consensus, but there's sort of this, this popular consensus that there are wood bison. Okay. And plains bison. There are wood bison reintroduction efforts that, that go on in Alaska, but this herd are plains bison that were released in the 1920s, about 130 miles from there. And they are kind of tolerated, more tolerated around, or at the time were more tolerated around the area Delta Junction. But when the Cold War kicked into gear, we started putting a lot of, putting a lot of aircraft and a lot of personnel and stuff around the Delta Junction area and building up a military presence in Alaska. And there was a lot of these buffalo that were running around there that had gotten re- released. They came out of Montana in the 20s and got right. turned loose there. So they're not technically indigenous then? Like no, but you get into such a clusterfuck of like what's what, right? Right. Okay, so. I understand this, this world. I get yeah, this. So yeah. this herd got dumped off. Like the ancestors of this herd got dumped off on this thing called the Solano, near the Solano mine. And it was a hot release, and the hot releases, like generally when you try to release animals, you like put them in an enclosure, let them get used to it for a week, two weeks, whatever. One day you just leave the gate open, and they very gradually, they're already kind of comfortable, and they kind of like gradually start poking their nose out, and then they tend to stay put. Right. These, they kicked them out of the back of a truck. Okay, uh, put them on a livestock truck, open the gate, they run off into the woods, everybody thinks they all just died, got killed by grizzlies. Oh. But 10 years later, it turns out there's like a couple hundred of them living 130 miles away from there in the Nadina, Dadina, and Chetislina valleys that flow down into the copper. Okay. So there's like, 
when I say they have an uneasy relationship, and you, it's hard to find someone to really articulate this or tell you this is a stated goal, but there's this herd of them that lives there. There's a handful. Of them. There's like the Farewell Burn herd that kind of has that same source. There's the um, Chitna herd, which is sourced from the, the kind of has that 1920s source. The Copper herd. And they're all like kind of the same size. I think that if they started, like, if their numbers started really exploding, and they started going into like areas that are more, that are like, have a lot of moose and a lot of caribou, and there was causing some problems with native wildlife, I feel that they would probably wind up having, they'd probably kill them all out of helicopters. But then when I say they have this uneasy relationship with the state, they kind of stay put. They've been there a long time. There's not a real problem with them. They like to try to keep the herd at around somewhere in the 200 animal mark. Okay. You can issue 24 tags. And like the way a state, like, you know, States have a mandate to, like, do you have renewable resources? And, and you have a mandate to, if you have surplus animals or sustainable, harvestable surplus of animals, is generally open to hunting. There's Got like it. a demand for it. People want the animals. They, they survey them. They count them. They know many, how many they have. And every year they kill two or three right. or one out of several hundred of them. But the, the success rates are so low. It's such a difficult area to hunt that you need to give out 24 tags to kill two. I love it. Okay, no, this all makes sense. Thank right. you. Okay, so you get one. So right now, though, in the Yukon, they are actively trying to reestablish like the other buffalo, wood buffalo, which do have morphological differences. If you look at... Because when you say wood buffalo, you mean like forest buffalo? Yeah. Okay. So when you look at a plains bison, so bison, bison, well, the plains bison, like bison, 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 the, the wood buffalo is bison, bison, Athabasca. Okay, got it. When you look at them, you're like, yeah, man, they're different. But is it really like, do they, do they constitute separate species? Because there's a lot of things that like seem different. There's like causes that make them different. You're like There's like changes that take place. And as they adapt to different environments and are, you know, like, you know, there's like natural selection taking place and you get changes. But at what point do you constitute it? Or at what point do you call it and say it's a different species or not or different subspecies? So in taxonomy, as my brother puts it, who's involved with taxonomy in a very detailed way, he's like, you have lumpers and splitters, meaning you have people who tend to see the same species yeah. And you have people who tend to see many different species. <laughs> Just look at look at mountain sheep. Look at steelhead. Look at you talking about Michigan steelhead. God, tell it to a BC person that exactly. it's a steelhead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you got like if you yeah. look at mountain sheep, you got like, you know, the Audubon, Desert, Rocky. It takes a it takes a trained eye to tell that shit apart. Totally. So that's a splitter. Well, yeah, okay. that's a splitter. Got it. Turkeys. How many people talk? Okay, I, I have. I hold the uh, the prestigious honor of holding like a turkey grand slam. Right. Meaning I've killed uh, Osceola, Rio, Miriams, Eastern, and Gould. There's some taxonomists who say you killed five turkeys. <laughs> okay. All that shit's just make believe. Right. You know, <laughs> like they have little color differences. Same okay. damn bird. Other people would be like, these are like very different. It's a grand slam. Turkey Grand Slam. But what happens when you get your tag in Alaska? I uh, went up and hunted it and got it. Oh, I thought you... Okay. <laughs> then I knew... No, no, no. We're out of... Yeah. So I wrote my book, my first book, didn't do well. Found the buffalo skull. And I was like, I'm going to find a way to write a book about this. Right. But I needed like a thing, right? I needed something bigger than that. Yeah. Drew the Copper River buffalo tag. So once I drew that tag, I knew I, was, I, knew I had a book. So then I started working my ass off 
on this book and did the hunt and, and killed the buffalo and had kind of an amazing set of adventures. And then I spent two years researching that book. And what was that book called? American Buffalo in Search of a Lost Icon. That was, that, so was that your first real big one then? Yeah, it did good. Okay. Cause no. I was, I was, I was stalking you on the internet the other yeah, day. Yeah. And that and got like, did great job. you know, like San Francisco Chronicle named it like one of the best 50 books and you know, no, it was cool. But my, my current publisher who I'm still with, she didn't care. Like she knew, like she looked at my first book and thought, I guess she looked at it. I mean, she just thought it was a good book that didn't sell well. And then when I approached them about doing my Buffalo book, I did like I pulled off a feat that doesn't often get pulled off where I actually like sold that book for more money than my first book. Usually if you sell like a book for a good amount of money and it sucks or doesn't not that it sucks, just doesn't do good. They usually kind of pull the plug on you, man. Yeah. But I got like a second chance and then did that book. And, and by that point, you know, now I can just do books. Meat eater. Tell me about that. And how did you get the name? Dun, dun, dun. Well, people always think it's like, Oh yeah, you like to eat meat. It was, it was like, you know, when you're reading books about dinosaurs and your kids, or you, you know, you don't have kids, but if one sits down and reads and kids like go through phases, they want to read about dinosaurs and that's what they want to read about. Yeah. And like the books I always describe dinosaurs is like, this dinosaur is a meat eater. And I'm always just right. like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just <laughs> funny. Like T-Rex, the greatest of all meat eaters. Right. I actually never thought of it. So I just like that term, you know, when you're reading like animal books where it like calls like the polar bear is a mighty meat eater. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw a meat eater. That's cool, man. And I started doing the show and, and the show was popular. And, and, and so I did a book and, and it was funny because I'd been working on the book for a long, long, long time. Just like a sort of a meditation on hunting. And, and sort of like a hunting manifesto, I kind of thought of it as. And, and I had worked on it for a long time in different forms, and eventually I published it as Meat Eater. Mm-hmm. Adventures in the Life of an American Hunter. And that was before the show? Nope. That was after the show. It, it came out, you know, I think, that's a good question, man. No, 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 we were doing the show. It came out, we were doing the show. Now, did you go pursue television, or no. did it come to you? It came to me a bunch of times. Yeah. In different ways. At the time, maybe it still is the case, because I was writing a lot, and so when you're doing magazine pieces, TV people find you. Mm. Like, cause like, like TV people aren't like out wandering the globe. Right. <laughs> because they just, they just have other responsibilities, and so you need to like find a way to like find out like what the, like the dirtbags out there finding out about, right? And they mm. find out about it by reading magazine pieces and stuff, and then, so, They'll contact you, you know? And so that was kind of some of my first things. I would get, I would get called in. Like I'd have a guy be like, Oh, I'm a producer at history channel. Love to talk with you sometime. And you'd go to the meeting and be like, Oh man, I'm going to like, they're going to buy some thing of mine and it's going to be a team. And you wind up like, you think like that guy just found the bullshit and find out what's interesting out there. Totally. Yeah. You're well, talking like, the story of my life right now. Yeah. So, story of my life. Yeah. And you're like, really? But eventually I fell in with, um, after some different development things and, and optioning some things. I fell in with the production company that I'm zero point zero production in New York. And, uh, we've been in a relationship forever. What it feels like forever. We've been, <laughs> we've been in like, we've been, in, you know, we've been working together for a long time, man. Well, you're like, six uh, seasons in. Is that what I read? Yeah. And we did, you know, some other pilot projects before that and did another eight part series. And then, now we've made almost a hundred or maybe a hundred plus meat eater episodes. Mm-hmm. And what's the concept of the show? If you had to describe it to someone who hadn't seen it, 
Well, it's a show about hunting and fishing and wild foods and just the culture of hunting, culture of fishing. Uh, we film solo stuff, you know, just one, just me, right? We do a lot of stuff with guests. Mm-hmm. We take a lot of people out, um, some, you know, celebrities and just Joe Blow friends and take people out um, sometimes on first hunts and kind of explore that and then, uh, do some stuff overseas and other, we've, been fortunate to go out and travel with um, indigenous, you know, hunter-gatherer cultures. We don't have the pressures that a lot of things have, so we don't have to engage in any of the bullshit. You know, we don't have to do, like, fake shit. Do you ever feel a pressure to get an animal? No. Used okay. to, but I don't. Good. I got over that. It's third episode we ever filmed. Good, We good. did it. We got it. We did a hunt and didn't kill anything. We were hunting mountain goats in an area where they really just do not want you to kill females. You're allowed to, but you're greatly discouraged from killing a female. In fact, you're even penalized if you kill a female because if you kill a female, you're not eligible to pull the tag again for four years. Right. They're basically saying don't kill a female. Yeah. However, it takes a trained eye. It's difficult. You need to look at a lot of damn goats to know a male from a female. So went to this area and had a lot of chances to kill females and didn't kill a female and certainly felt like, certainly felt like a show busy pressure to kill a female. Right. Mm-hmm. And we didn't. And I was like, man, you know, we can't even use it. There's no way we can put it out. And then we cut this episode, like about not getting something, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and, and people loved it or like the right people loved it. Right. Yeah. The, well, people, the people that people I care about. care about. Like yeah. I have a picture in my head of the person, like when I'm doing TV, there's like a person I imagine. Yeah. It's pretty much my brother. So like, I imagine like, like a, 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 a pretty well educated biologist or an ecologist who hates television. Mm. I want to make a show that they like. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, if that dude, cause when someone says to me like, man, I hate TV. I never watch TV, but I like that show you do. I'm like, that's like the highest comment for guys like, Oh, I love all that stuff. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Thanks man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's hard, right? I know with my series when I had my show, it was, I think we had like 50% of the episodes didn't have fish caught. Yeah. And, uh, but <laughs> that's a high some, percentage. But there's man. some of my favorite episodes. I mean, there's always history and there's other, maybe it's not 50%, but it sure shit felt like it when there's one fish being caught, right? Yeah. Then I hear the people who are complaining and I go, well, to be fair, you guys are also watching like Billy Bob Bass shows all yeah. day long. And We're there's nothing like wrong with catches, that. Like but some dude catches 90 of them out of some yeah. uh, lake in Florida. The people yeah. who are reaching out to me, you know, are people who, the people who really love the show are people I really respect. So to me, it really, that was all that mattered. Right? I remember getting an email from a guy when I was worried about it, kind of like shortly after I was worried about it, getting an email from a guy. He's like, I have enough failure in my life as it is. I don't need to see it on TV. Oh, burn. <laughs> okay. But do you like, I mean, with the show, are you happy with it right now? Oh you, yeah. We're making, we're making the best episodes we've ever made right now. Okay. So you're going to be doing this for a while. I love it, man. Okay. I love it. I love doing it. I really, I mean, I honestly like, I really like doing it. I like it for a couple reasons. I like, I, I, I've come to really just honestly love Okay, to really honestly love the, the some of the people I get to work around. Yeah, for sure. And we're able to do something, you know. I mean, we're we're able to do we're able to just kind of like make our own call, you know. And, and I don't, I'm not being critical of people who have a lot of who who have a lot of constraints from their venue, right? Like who they're the, like a network or whatever. I, I like I just I know that that happens. Cause I've been through that, and I don't. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't like judge it. I don't look down on it. I understand how it happens. I understand, like, I know that story, but we're just in a way that we're able to live outside of it. 
We own our own content. Like we own everything we've ever done. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't, we don't get notes. We don't get like network notes. You know, we're like, I mean, how many other, we're just able to make show like I'm friends, right? I'm friends with everyone that puts a hand into that thing and everyone that puts a hand into it cares about it and has like good opinions about like how to make it better. They're not sitting there like what we need to do to satisfy, right? Yeah. Some outside force. It's just like, what would make it like as good as we could make it? Like outside of, sure. We have things to deal with like budgets and time and all that, but we don't have like other things. We don't have other noise influences. And now like you can go, you know, our shows up on Netflix. There's just not many shows on, there's not many shows that are on Netflix that are coming out of, what I would call such like a peer set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. There's yeah. like, I mean, there's shows, there's like fantastic shows out there, but it's just, we just have a really unusual, we're just, we just been gifted the, the ability to do something that just like feels good. I'm going to ask you four questions if that's okay. Yeah. Real quick. Okay. First one, I've got a trick hint in like two days and I'm supposed to ask you how you suggest to prepare a wild turkey so that it's not tough. Man, I only, I kind of do one thing with them now. You um, deep fry them. You throw them in the, no, throw never, them in the I would, juice. I would not deep fry a wild okay. turkey. <laughs> you'll have, you'll have like, I mean, people do it. It can be done. I wouldn't do it. We used to do them, we used to do them Thanksgiving style. Mm-hmm. If you do that, you do have to foil them, you know, put foil over them. Oh, what about bacon? I wouldn't do that. I mean, like bacon, I, 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 I wouldn't do it. I, I, if I was gonna, if I was, let's just say I was gonna Thanksgiving style. But you, do you guys have Thanksgiving where you live? What do you call it? Yeah, it's just a different day. Yeah, but what is it? What is it? It has a different name too, doesn't it? Oh, I could totally bullshit you right now. Be like, it's Eskimo Day. No, no, it's, yeah, it's Thanksgiving. It is Thanksgiving? Yeah, yeah. What the hell is Boxing Day? I don't know. No, it's like the day after Christmas. It's 26. You guys so have thank- Black, what do you guys have? Like Black Friday? No, that's a shot. No, that's a new thing. Oh. No, I remember Boxing Day is the 26th. Yeah. So Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving. Yeah. But you guys have yours in... November. And ours is in October. Right. So yeah. maybe that's where my confusion was. If I was going to do one that way, I would put it, cook it under, like bake it under foil. Okay. And brush like a lot of butter on it. Okay. And then only in the end, pull the foil off and brown the skin. But okay. I now, like what I do with turkeys, and I, you know, get a couple turkeys a year. So it's not that many. I split them down the backbone, and I'll then brine them. In just like salt water? Walt, yeah, water, sugar, and salt, and I'll squeeze some lemons and put herbs in it. The herbs is probably just for like fun. I think there's a lot of, like, people put a lot of things in brines where I'm like, sure, it looks great, sounds good, but I just don't know that when you eat that bird, you're tasting those herbs. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I feel like it's, I feel like there's a little bit of mental masturbation that goes on when people are making brines. Because <laughs> people would be like, and a half of a bay leaf. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so you're telling me when you're eating that turkey, you're feeling, you're tasting the, the bay leaf that was floating leaf. around in the brine. I'll point out there's a lot of people who are a lot better cooks than I am, but, uh, I brine them and then I spatchcock them. Okay. Or just split them right in half. So I have two halves. Okay. Because one, it's way easier to bring the turkey home. If you take the turkey and split them down the backbone and take the breast bone right out, you can lay the two halves on top of each other and put it in a carry-on. Yeah, it takes half Or just space. throw it in a cooler and drive home, which is a nice way to transport the bird. Remember, you got to leave the leg attached for legality. Sake. Yeah, I heard that going back through Canada. So... Um, and then you soak them in a brine. I take the halves, half I brine them overnight, half a bailey. <laughs> right. Brine them overnight. Yeah. 
and then I grill them on like a medium low heat skin down for most of it. Uh-huh. And I'll kind of flip them back and forth mm-hmm. and grill them or brine them and smoke them. So, and you'll read shit online, people being like, oh yeah, brining doesn't really matter. It's like bullshit, it man. It does, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Next, next question. Uh, you went to Bolivia. I went to Bolivia as well and was more fascinated with the guys with their bows than I was with the fishing. Fishing was amazing. It yeah, was I like world class. Yeah, the bows are cool. Mm, but I, so anyway, I took the guide's bow and I had him train me for an afternoon with his, you've seen the bows that they have. Yeah. And I saw you shooting. You were, no, you. No, I was shooting a recurve yeah, bow. Right. So I used his bow and anyway, I got one of those Savalo. It was, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, was it was like a single two. I had to like sneak up on it and it tipped. It was by itself and I was able to get it and like my life changed. Dude, it's great. So I bought one of those bows and yeah. I took it home with me. I have one in my living room. But here's the problem. So, <laughs> so I was, I've been hunting grouse home with with my compound yeah. and was getting pretty I mean I was getting most of my birds so I was feeling you know kind of full of myself so I went to go get my Bolivian bow and I can't shoot it from here to there I mean I can shoot it but I've got no accuracy no they're hard yeah so my buddy told me about this instinctive shooting and I'd never heard of that yeah. and I was wondering if you could just take two minutes to explain to people what instinctive shooting is the problem with it is it's on it's like so difficult to describe. I grew up shoot like I shot instinctive even like we were shooting instinctive with compounds. Yeah, I was going to say can you do that with guns and compounds? Can it be with any Well, you shoot a shot like yeah, you know the best way to explain it's easy to explain to someone who's familiar with wing shooting. Mm. Because you're focused on the target. Okay? You're focused on the target. And you're just sort of like in some like zenful way, just like aware of where the arrow is. And you're just, you're not using any kind of sight aids. You're just like kind of like looking down the arrow. The arrow's in your peripheral under vision as you stare at the target. And just through repetition, 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 you just learn like what it feels like when you let it go. There's people who would explain it more eloquently, but there's no sight aid. Yeah, it's crazy. There's another way to shoot a recurve where you're actually using, where you're actually very much aware of and focused on the tip of the arrow. Okay. Right? And you and you can use like a spacing method there. But instinctive is just basically it's like we use we never use that word when we were young. We just use it like look you're just looking down the arrow. Right. Okay. But you're not looking down the arrow. You're looking at your target. Yeah, you're focused on your target, but you're not in a position like if I said to you like look down the arrow, you'd hold the arrow like up to your eye, right? Yeah. But you're not because the arrow's like lower. So you're sort of like Looking over the arrow. Yeah, you're looking like over the arrow at the target, but somehow like subconsciously aware of the arrow's direction and just through familiarity of doing it out of repetition, you learn to do it. But it's crazy because now all of a sudden... I don't do it now. I do it when I shoot my like... If I shoot my like South America bow messing around, I'm shooting instinctive and I'm not like horrible at it. But And when I shoot fish... Still now, like we were just bow fishing down South America. When I shoot fish, I shoot instinctive. It's crazy, and it works. It works really well. Like yeah, really especially for shooting fish. I've tried. I think it's actually. I've tried shooting fish with a pin, which can be done, but um, with a sight pin. But I shoot fish way, way, way better instinctive than I do with a pin. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm like, I'm not that. Like, it's you know, I'm not a good recurve shot. I'm not a good longbow shot, but. I can shoot fish pretty good. Uh, third thing. This is a controversial one, but I'm going to ask you anyway, and I'm going to ask all my guests this. Shooting ethics. If you can get 20 yards to an animal with a gun versus 20 yards to an animal with a bow, is it more ethical to shoot with the gun? 
it's impossible to answer because what are you counting on? Are you counting animal suffering? If you ask an animal rights activist, most animal rights activists are going to say that they think that you ought to, that we need to minimize suffering. Mm. Okay. As a sensitive the, woman, I feel like we do need to minimize suffering. Just like minimize suffering. The deer doesn't care. When you run an arrow through a deer, which is it's like a violent act, right? Basically, you're just, you're like, you're, you're bleeding it to death. When you kill someone with a bow, what's typically happening is you're typically causing it to hemorrhage and bleed to death. If your goal was to minimize suffering, once you put an arrow into a, a sentient animal and you are doing it with the intent of causing it to hemorrhage and bleed to death, the deer doesn't care what's in your heart. The deer doesn't care how far away you were. The deer doesn't give a shit about any of this, right? It's like you've caused it to, you've mortally wounded it. It's fucking like, why would it care? It doesn't. And that's what I always say. No, so it's like, when I argue, so this when you say like, parent. what's most ethical? Like, how do you define ethics? Like if you, if you define ethics from the perspective of animal suffering, it's far more humane to shoot it with a firearm that carries with it a tremendous amount of force causes something called hydrostatic shock and kills the animal much more quickly. It does. Okay. So that's what I was trying to talk oh, about. With dude, my... Are you even, are you kidding okay, me? So like, let's say you're going to kill me right now. And I had a choice. Like, let's say April, look, you're going to die. You're going to die. Yeah. And I could take an arrow and poke you in the lung with it. And then you'd run around all over the garage and bleed out. Or I'd shoot you with a gun. You'd die within a half a second. I'd rather die right away. Yeah. So why? Because people aren't thinking about the animal suffering. They're thinking about their own self. Oh, God. Here you go, Steve. Now they're you're going to throw it down a whole no, new avenue. What they're thinking about is they're sort of like grappling with this. Uh, they're sort of like grappling with a lot of guilt and aspects. I mean, so there's also people who's like challenge, but deer don't care if it was challenging. No, I don't care if it's challenging either. I just want to do what's right. Like when you want it to be challenging... You're doing it. You're talking about yourself. You're not talking about the animal. So if you're hitting with a vital with a gun and or with I'm going to say like, if we, if we agree that like sort of like the, the, the place to, to, to hit an animal. Um, and when I'm shooting with my bow or my rifle on a broadside animal, I'm aiming for the same point, you know, because of meat wastage and, and also just efficacy. I'm always thinking basically like a little lower than halfway up the animal, a rib or two back from the front. Shoulder. Mm-hmm. Right. That's where I want to hit him. Rifle or bow, I want to hit him in the exact same spot. With an arrow, what's going to happen is you're just going to, you're going to cause a wound channel and it's going to bleed out. Slowly. Well, fast. Depends. Compared to a gun. Slower than a gun. I mean, you're running a projectile, you're running like, you know, you're running like a 150 or 180 grain projectile at, at, at that distance at <laughs> damn near 3,000 feet per second into its side. It's like a, It's a tremendous amount of energy. Is there any advantage to bow hunting over hunting with a gun? For who? For the, for... For game managers, game managers like, because the efficacy is much lower with a, like, just like the, the, the harvest rates are so much lower with archery that you can create more opportunity. The reason we have archery seasons is by one of the factors of it is your success rates are much lower so you can greatly increase opportunity you can increase hunter opportunity by having archery seasons Mm -hmm. because let's just say you live like in a you know in a pretty typical whitetail state in the eastern united states of america your your whitetail deer season is going to start like let's say it starts october one it's going to run up in the mid for bows october one it's going to run up in the mid november it's going to take a week or two off for general firearm. It's going to pick back up again and run to the end of the year. Mm-hmm. You're going to kill vastly more deer. 
during that two week general firearm season. Right. But you're increasing hunter opportunity and hunter days of field tremendously through the bow seasons, but they're just, their rate of harvest isn't as high. Okay. So that's the advantage for the deer then. So for well, the no, deer. For the deer as a, well, no, because they already know how many deer they can afford to kill. The state, I mean, your game managers already have an idea of what a harvest rate is. I guess they, my brain's just stuck on the suffering. I didn't realize till just right now that it's stuck on the suffering thing. So it does have less suffering with a gun. If you're a person, you're just sitting there thinking that I don't care about my own spiritual concerns. I don't care about social pressures. I don't care about like creating the facade of challenge. Cause, and you just are like, I want to eat an animal and I want to reduce that animal's suffering. What I would suggest to you, and, and, and I'm like motivated by that, but that's not my own, that's not the only concerns I have in my head. But if the, I were that person or someone came to me and said, I want to eat meat, I want to kill it myself, I want to just make sure it suffers, like not at all. I would say, okay, limit your shots to, don't shoot any farther than a hundred yards because, and this, I'm just speaking very generally, okay? Like, let's just say, keep your shots like a hundred yards or less because Things start for, for, for inexperienced shooters. Things seem to kind of start going downhill out past 100 yards. And I've spent a lot of time home with inexperienced shooters. Most animals, I kill a lot of animals standing between 100 and 200 yards. But with a bow, it's like th- 20, 30 yards. Yeah. So it's totally 20 different. 20 or 30 yards is different. But if you, if I was just saying, if you were just like, I want quick, clean kills, I'd be like, okay, don't take far shots. Take shots, you know, stay within 100 yards. Don't take crazy going away, coming on shots. Hold tight, wait for broadside shots, and shoot their heart out. And then I guess you justify it with Bo saying, well, with the bow, I've got to get so much closer to make an ethical shot. It's an interesting argument, and it's a controversial. You do got to get cool. I mean, yeah, that's that's the that, that, that like therein lies the 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 the, the rub of the, with the bow is you got to get close. Yeah, you got to get close. And but like if you if you're really just defining it down to like humane slaughter practices. I've seen people do, you know, I've seen, I've, I've seen a lot of wound loss with firearms. I've seen a lot more wound loss with archery. And yeah, if I was just, if I was worried, if my sole concern was the suffering of individual animals, that would be my suggestion. Okay. I'm happy I asked. That's, I'm happy I asked. Last question. Anyone who tells you that it's like the Daniel's going to suffer less shooting with the bow is, is pushing an agenda. Last question. Um, is there anything that you're really focusing on from a conservation stance that you'd like to talk about or that you'd like to mention? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of things, but I think there's a tremendous amount of attention right now in the conservation community to public lands issues in the United States. We, we have an idea that comes up now and then. It's kind of like if you put a wooden stake in its heart, right? It'd still come back in a couple of years. To, to revisit us in the political cycles. But, uh, this idea of that, uh, the, the people, the American people own too much land and are collectively own too much land and that we need to be, uh, forcing federal land management agencies to offload public lands. They use a rhetorical thing like to put it into state control, but what they're really pushing for is, uh, you know, to move it towards privatization and to, move, and to get rid of any impediments to extraction. Mm-hmm. Mineral extraction, energy extraction, and so th- their motivation is is just making money on public land. You know, taking our public lands and putting them into private hands where they can make money. And um, it's it's a real issue right now. We've been dealing with it on this current 
iteration. We've been dealing with it, on it for a couple of years now, and it's really taken, it's really absorbed a lot of attention from a lot of groups that look at many, many different issues, but they've kind of coalesced around this issue because it's the most pressing thing right now. So I've been spending a lot of energy on that and, and I'm starting to feel that, um, I'm starting to feel that, that we're, it's a really important battle, but I worry about some things that maybe aren't being talked about right now because we're being put into a situation where we have to spend so much time on this issue. Okay. But yeah, it's like, it's been, when it, when it comes to conservation issues for the last two years, I feel like it's the only thing I'm talking, the only thing I've, that anybody's able to talk about. Well, I'm going to let you get back to your Easter here. Is yeah, there thank you. anything that you would like to add or ask me? No, this is great. You ask good questions. Well, a lot of stuff I haven't talked about in a long time. Thanks for sharing your life with us. Yeah. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. 